Hello, fans of New Mexico in Focus. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer. We are sorry to be getting this episode out late to you. It's been a whirlwind here trying to keep on top of everything. We hope that you managed to catch our virtual town hall that we aired on New Mexico PBS last Sunday. That was at 6 o'clock, and it looked at the impacts of COVID-19 on our tribal communities, which, as we all know, have been hit extra hard uh, by this virus and this pandemic in just really horrific ways. We have lots of great guests on that show, and it will air again this Saturday at 5 o'clock on KNME Channel 5.1. First up in the show, which aired on Friday, April 17th, though, really looking at the latest developments around COVID-19 in New Mexico and the response to it. And it really, the conversation with our line panelists focuses around debate over when and how to open things back up, the friction over the governor's stay-at-home order and how that is being rolled out seems to be growing. There have been a couple of protests in the state and that haven't amounted to a huge amount of people, but calls, especially from the state Republican Party, that the time is now to open up uh, some of the businesses and try to get back to some sense of normalcy and, more importantly, perhaps help the economy, which we know has been suffering greatly. They kick off the conversation, though, starting about the same sort of divide over religious services, which came to a boil around the Easter weekend. Here's host Gene Grant. We've talked about it in our New Mexico in Focus meetings and maybe in your own homes too. This week has been rough. It just feels like this is the week where it all sort of has come home to roost for a lot of us. We're also seeing it in our government as Republicans have called for a far more detailed public health order from Governor Lujan Grisham. And Democrats have bristled, honestly, saying easing restrictions all but guarantees a health care crisis in our state and an overwhelmed uh, health system. That's where we'll start with our panel this week. Today, we have two with us. Really pleased to have line regular and UNM law professor, Serge Martinez. Serge, hello there. And Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter, also joins us this week. Julianne, thank you from Santa Fe. Really appreciate you coming in, meaning your living room, but we appreciate that. All thank right. you. Let me start with what's the most recent situation we had here, which was uh, Easter weekend. Um, I'm curious, Julianne, starting with you, if there was a timing problem here as part of the issue with Governor Lujan Grisham, meaning some churches did hold service that did, in fact, violate the no gathering order. And one of the priests was quoted here in Albuquerque saying, look, the order just came down flat out way too late for me to do anything about. Was there, is he partially correct on that? The order did come very late. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, prior to uh, that that coming really at the end of the week, we were all under the impression that um, it was a good idea to not have a gathering that large, uh, but that the state wasn't going to command the churches to um, not hold that type of gathering. So I think you saw a lot of churches make proactive decisions early on in this process. Again, the early part of March, um, kind of transfer everything to this virtual, you know, Facebook live kind of worship experience for folks. There's just been a lot of efforts to stay connected, um, but not to have those large group meetings. So I think there was plenty of opportunity for people to prepare for that. And, you know, it's really a, a measure of stubbornness. It's, it's just a measure of disbelief uh, that uh, some folks said, it's fine. We'll have these big groups get together anyway. 
Um, and I think we've seen across the country, across the world, uh, where big gatherings like that were found to be kind of, you know, hubs of the disease transmission. And so, um, you know, faith communities are not uh, immune to that. They're not protected from the virus transmission. And so I think you had a lot of people paying attention to that early on. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Serge, your take on this, we've got some other things to cover here, but your, your take, you know, my sense of it was the governor was just basically waiting for the church to take its own leadership position on this and not have her have to step in. She waited as long as possible, then finally stepped in with it. But I'm not sure if it really served uh, the situation. What was your sense of it? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously the optics of it are not great saying, you know, you have to not do church. Um, and I can see um, from a political standpoint, some reluctance to actually make that pronouncement. You know, I also think this just, you know, lays very clear the, this disconnect between those who are looking for reasons to, or, and ways to sort of opt out of the governor's orders, right? To say, oh, this doesn't apply to us. And those who are looking for ways to opt in and mm -hmm. say, oh, this, does apply to us, and like Julianne was saying, it's probably not a good idea for us to be doing this, even if the you know the restrictions don't explicitly say you may not do X, Y, or Z. Um, and so, you know, the 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 question of how detailed do you need to get is one that I face regularly with students, with my children, with in society. You know, any any sort of law or policy making, we discuss that. Um, in this case, I think the you know the 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 good citizen uh, and civic and member of society answer is let's try to be as good at self-regulating as possible mm -hmm. um, and it's always unfortunate when folks push that too far let me stay with you serge on this next one uh, G uh, state gop chairman stephen pierce had a big zoom meeting for republicans uh, recently airing a lot of frustration over the governor's order, calling it a one-size-fits-all scenario that's not working for lots of rural parts of New Mexico. Meaning, if the idea is to gang people up just into big box stores in order to keep exposure down and keep exposure to all of us at a minimum, picking winners and losers here is having a bit of a problem for a lot of Republicans. How, what's your sense of it? Because a lot of folks are saying, all right, we get the six foot thing. We get the, the face mask thing. Why can't local nurseries, local package stores, local, any kind of store follow the same kind of rules as big box stores? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, from my standpoint, again, it's, it's a similar sort of question, right? What we're saying is not who gets to, you know, be the winner, as you say, but who, need, who do we need to have open? Who do we need to, to be able to, um, for folks to be able to access as a public? Not, this is not about individual businesses and business owners or individual types of business. And I mean, it's obviously regrettable for everyone involved where we are, but it's missing the, the forest for the trees here to say, you know, well, we can do all those, we can you know, be just as safe as they can, Possibly, but that's not the point. The point is to minimize contact as much as possible. And mm -hmm. any sort of efforts to, to stretch that and push that are just going to increase the amount of exposure and spread. And, and it is to me almost, um, it's, it's missing the big picture, right? To, to focus on these sort of small individual um, decisions and impacts. But Julianne, following up on what Serge is saying here, is it not 
huge when you, let me give you an example. There was a woman that owned a store, a restaurant, package store, sort of one of those classic combination stores you see in rural New Mexico a lot. She's in the Raton area and she is miles. I mean, folks that sort of ring around her have miles to go to get what she has to offer for those local communities. And she, her question was, who is this actually serving? I can find a way to put tape on my floor. I can ask for people to put on masks. I can find a way for us to be safe so folks don't have to drive 20 miles for a roll of toilet paper. Do these folks have a, have a, have a point here that there's a way sure. to do this? I think they do have a point. I think we've seen, um, you know, that what the governor said in the press conference yesterday, I thought was interesting when a reporter asked her to follow up on the nursery issue. Um, she, she kind of said, and I'll paraphrase, we can't be looking for loopholes here. Uh, yeah. um, and she, she talks about how painful it is, but I think at the same time, um, there are common sense ways to deal with it and ways to deal with it that don't reward out of state big box stores that don't pay um, into the New Mexico economy and have crappy wages and awful benefits. Um, we're sending everyone there instead of being able to send folks to the local businesses that we've fought so hard to um, establish and support. And so I think when it comes to this nursery issue, is a great example. You know, Santa Fe Reporter broke this story that nurseries were getting cease and desist orders last week. Um, and in fact, there still isn't clarity about what to do. You know, the, the governor has essentially said, we're not creating a loophole for you. You know, we're sorry, deal with it. Um, but you've got some nurseries uh, offering curbside service um, and, you know, kind of that model that a lot of retail has um, migrated to. And then you have some nurseries that are like, look, we got to a cease and desist order we've closed completely and all of our plants are going to die before you get this resolved. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, another kind of situation that's similar is that the week before um, we learned that bicycle shops were being asked to close, even right. though they were providing essential transportation repair services for people who depend on, you know, mm -hmm. anything but a car to get around. And in that instance, you had the mayor of the city of Santa Fe, Alan Weber, sent a late night email to the governor's office and the very next morning it was like okay fine bike shops can stay open if they follow these new strict rules um and only for repair mm -hmm. so you, you see some movement you see some compromise in some areas but not in others um and i think it's not just the republicans who are complaining about this um mm -hmm. it's it's really across the board because you are looking at you know as a business owner um what are the next two weeks look like we're closed until May 1st right now. Are we going to be closed until May 15th? Right. No one knows. Um, you point. did, you know, have the governor's general counsel tell the Supreme Court in the election arguments on Tuesday um, that things weren't going to be back to normal by the time early voting started in um, the middle of May. So I felt like that was a pretty good indication also that uh, we're not going to be, you know, back to party time on May 1st. Right. I got to imagine. We're at two minutes, guys. Serge, I wanted you to follow up on that as well. You know, the idea that I, I, I'm hearing your point a second ago, but is it not a problem to have so many people ganged up in a big box stores? You know, I, I just, I can't even imagine myself personally walking into a big box store right now. It just seems very dangerous. But here we are forcing people to do this. There's something, something almost illogical here when you think about it. You know, and it makes it a tough sell to the public in some parts of the public. Is there wiggle room for this governor at some point in the next couple of weeks to start to ease some of these things in your mind? I mean, I absolutely think there's, there's always room for a smarter, you know, well-crafted policy and approach that would take some of this into account. Where I'm concerned is, 
you know, as Julianne said, the mayor of Santa Fe sends an email to the governor and gets stuff done. All the, all the businesses that don't have the ear of the mayor of Santa Fe or, or someone that can talk to the governor, this is how we create bad policy by crafting a bunch of small exceptions that are based on who you know or one person who got, you know, managed to get the news um, uh, uh, coming to talk to them or whatever, instead of a thoughtful, well-crafted uh, response. So I think there's absolutely room and it's not, it's totally consistent with what I've been sort of saying, right? What we need is not a bunch of ad hoc exceptions uh, to this. It's, an, it's important to understand the overall general principles that we're going for and be smart and thoughtful and agree on what are the base principles we're worrying about rather than try to say these are winners, these are losers, but rather this is consistent with the overall goal. Gotcha. We'll have to leave that there, guys. Uh, we'll come back to look at COVID-19 in prisons in just a second. Next up on the show is a check-in, as we've been doing each and every week on the show, with reporters who are covering COVID-19 all across New Mexico. As you know, we're a big state, super spread out, and our experience here in northern central New Mexico is not at all what it's like in other parts of the state. So we wanted to check in with Algernon de Massa. He is a reporter at the Las Cruces Sun News. Las Cruces, of course, a very interesting place uh, in all kinds of ways. But when it comes to COVID-19, they have not yet had as many diagnosed cases down in the southern part of the state. But there are other things at play. There's still construction on a border wall going on, as that has been deemed essential work. There are also migrant detention centers down there. So we wanted to find out if there have been cases there and how those detainees uh, are being treated and how that is uh, playing out there in the southern part of our state. Here's correspondent Laura Paskus with that interview. Algernon Damasa, thank you so much for joining us. As of midweek, 50 people have tested positive for COVID-19 in Doña Ana County, and almost half of those cases are people under 40. How is the virus spreading in the county? There's not a whole lot that we know, except that there has been community spread in the county. Some of the initial cases appeared to be travel related. Um, there are people in Doña Ana County who travel either within the United States or out of country. We also have professors at NMSU, New Mexico State University, who sometimes entertain visiting lecturers or just visitors from out of state. So early testing in the state focused mostly on Albuquerque and Santa Fe. At this point, is there enough testing in southern New Mexico and how are people accessing that? I think a good question to ask is, is there enough testing anywhere? For a long time, we didn't know what the extent of testing in individual counties was. The State Department of Health just started reporting that and posting it on their website this week. And then I, I wanted to ask you, are there cases, are there known cases of COVID-19 among migrants who are being held in the detention centers and elsewhere along the border? What do we know? We don't know a whole lot except that there have been cases identified at a facility in Otero County where there is a privately run prison facility right next to a privately run uh, facility for detained migrants. And uh, there have been cases reported there. And do we know anything about how those people are being treated or um, isolated or what do we know about how they're being taken care of? 
There we also don't know a whole lot. Um, prisons and detention centers do have protocols in place for isolating individuals in the case of an outbreak of an infectious disease, but how many can they isolate? And that is the problem when you have a highly contagious uh, coronavirus for which there's no vaccine or any specific treatment yet, is that you can have cases spike really rapidly. And this is one of the reasons that the governor is trying to move some people out of prison facilities across the state. So you reported last week that there were trailers um, for border wall workers in Columbus that have been now broken up and moved off. Can you talk about what was going on there and what the concerns were? So construction on the southern border wall is considered essential business, a federal infrastructure project, and progress has continued. And what happened in the border village of Columbus was that they set up some housing, some uh, so-called man camps, trailer housing, for people who were going to be working construction on the wall. And there were some questions in the village among residents about how these people were being housed in this sort of congregate situation in the midst of a in the midst of a pandemic, and after a few days of intense questioning and some press scrutiny, the trailers have been broken up and moved to one location just south of the village, closer to the port of entry at Columbus, and a few trailers are also being moved to the Antelope Wills port of entry area. Okay, so the border wall construction is ongoing. How many people are working in southern New Mexico on that project right now, do you think? That number uh, is probably in the hundreds. Um, the particular trailer housing that was being set up in Columbus was going to accommodate anywhere from 20 to 80 people who wanted to live here, although they were also being given the option of commuting from the El Paso area or other parts of New Mexico where they'd been hired. So um, there's quite a bit of wall going up. It's a long-term project, uh, one and a half to two years in Luna County and Hidalgo County just to our west. Do you cover, um, you're based in Las Cruces, but you previously worked at the Dumbing Headlight, is that right? That's um, correct. That's where I started and have you been um, tracking what's happening in Deming? I feel like Deming is a really interesting town. Um, it's sort of struggled economically and is, has definitely bore the brunt um, of, of uh, trying to help migrants. How is a town like Deming coping with COVID-19 and the threat of COVID-19? It's very interesting. So Deming is the seat of Luna County, which is a southern border county that has double-digit unemployment even in good times for the rest of the state and the country. Um, it's uh, large, it's semi-rural, there is a lot of uh, farms and ranches out here and not a lot of other kind of economic activity. Luna County only has a couple of cases currently of um, COVID-19, uh, also much fewer tests. And, and one hospital facility that would, uh, that might be vulnerable if there was a sudden spike of, a sudden spike of cases in this area. Um, so there's, maybe, you know, the county is trying to prepare as best as it can. At the same time, there's also a, a public interest campaign just to get people to understand that what's happening in the rest of the country and the rest of our state is a reality and does present a public health threat 
um, to the community here. Your beat also covers Grant County and over towards Silver City. How is um, there, again, there, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of cases in Silver City. I think there's 10 right now. Um, what are some of the concerns in Silver City as they're getting ready? So there are 10 cases total in Grant County, which includes Silver City, but also some of the neighboring communities of Membris and Santa Rita. Santa Rita, of course, uh, is notable for the presence of uh, copper mining. And the Chino mine, which is owned by the Freeport McMoran Company, uh, has actually suspended operations until further notice because there's been a cluster of cases identified there. And this is a site where workers, employees, and contractors from different counties of the state, as well as residents of Arizona, uh, have congregated to work. And this work initially went on because it was essential business, but uh, that operation has shut down for at least a couple of weeks, and they've been testing employees and contractors who worked at the site uh, to try to identify and isolate people as quickly as possible. Hey, Algernon, thank you so much for your work keeping us informed on everything that's happening in southern New Mexico. Um, be safe. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Laura. Be safe. We touched earlier on the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on our native communities in New Mexico. And we want to remind you again that you can watch that virtual town hall we did with tribal leaders and state leaders. It airs again this Saturday at 5 o'clock on KNME Channel 5.1. This week on the show, though, correspondent Antonio Gonzalez also wanted to get into the response topic. We gathered together some tribal officials from the Zuni Pueblo, from the All Pueblo Council of Governors, as well as the State Secretary for the Department of Indian Affairs to talk about that response and how culture plays into it. We know that this is an extra challenging the stay at home, the physical distancing, an extra big challenge for Native communities who have multi-generational homes, who have spiritual um, programs and dances and things that are truly affected by the COVID-19 spread, as well as really tangible things like the need for water and food that is not readily accessible in many parts of tribal communities where those things are just not close at hand, where potable water is still a luxury that not everyone enjoys. So here now is Antonia Gonzalez with that interview. During a Wednesday briefing, the state revealed that by early this week, a stunning 75% of new COVID-19 cases in New Mexico came from Sandoval, San Juan, and McKinley counties. They have larger native populations and those numbers underscore the extent to which the disease has impacted tribes. Here's correspondent Antonio Gonzalez. Secretary Trujillo, Lieutenant Governor Balacati, and Chairman Chavarria, thank you for joining us virtually this week on New Mexico in Focus. Lieutenant Governor, let's uh, start with you. Uh, Zuni's been alerting the community about COVID-19 cases, also alerting the community about different measures the tribe's taking including um, a curfew, partial closure of the community. First off, uh, how is Zuni doing right now? Well, of course, uh, thank you, um, Elakor. Uh, my name is Carlton Bawakati, and uh, on behalf of Governor Zuni Tribal Council, I wanna make sure that we uh, identify and, and uh, our emergency operation manager and our incident command team and our frontline for doing an outstanding job. Uh, as you stated, 
Um, our numbers are increasing. Um, we have 17 pending, and unfortunately, we have 31 positive and um, two deaths in the area. And our Zuni IHS covers also the Raymond Pine Hill area, so our numbers are aggregate with those. Um, we are currently working with the Department of Health to try to make sure that we identify uh, Zuni tribal members. Um, but again, um, there are so many other resources focused everywhere. Um, we're proud of our resources, and again, um, all these steps are designed to make sure that our um, the most uh, I guess fragile of our population, our elderly, and our uh, youth are taken care of. And what is your biggest concern right now of the tribe from the governor's office when it comes to addressing COVID-19, uh, Lieutenant Governor? Part of the challenges that we face, and I think many tribal leaders are facing, is uh, making sure that our tribal members um, really take, um, take into consideration the seriousness of this uh, um, pandemic and make sure that they stay at home, make sure, making sure that they keep their families safe and at home. And unfortunately, um, we're social creatures, as, as we stated before. Um, and it's hard for our, pe our people to make sure that they um, respect our traditions um, and, our, and our way of life, and yet at the same time, make sure that they are taking those steps to take care of themselves and their families. Um, those are some of the challenges we face. And of course, a lot of misinformation um, causes people to be concerned, um, but we're proud of our PIO for making sure that we put out factual information. And I guess when we look at it, that is part of our challenges as tribal leaders is making sure that um, we're discerning rumors from fact. And unfortunately, because most tribal leaders and most tribal governments are geared towards providing factual information, um, we're sometimes a little bit behind the rumor mill. And unfortunately, um, sometimes that can get ahead of us. But again, uh, we continue to impress upon our people the importance of staying at home and, and respecting not only Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's orders, but also uh, Governor Pentia's orders. Uh, Chairman uh, Chavarria, the Council of Governors, uh, advocates for Pueblo communities in New Mexico. Many um, are tight knit, some are some have. Uh, larger populations of a few thousand. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you think it's important for the response to COVID-19 that it's done collectively among all the Pueblo nations? Yeah, the response to COVID-19, again, is unprecedented. Um, it's very important that we all uh, communicate, not just the Pueblos, but also the tribes and nations here in New Mexico and throughout the country uh, it's very un unfortunate at times, though, that we get different services from the Indian Health Services. Some are direct service tribes, others are Title V self-governance tribes. And so it's very critical and that, that mechanism, again, to the trust responsibility from the federal uh, government. But as the chairman for the All-Public Council of Governors, it's having to provide that information to all leadership because we all have different internal capacities and capabilities. It's not a one size fits all, but it's very important that we share uh, information. So for each tribal leader, it'd be up to them to determine what's that best path forward uh, for them and how do they share that information, which is very critical uh, in this unprecedented time. And so the importance of communication is very uh, critical from the uh, governor's office. I know we have secretary, in affairs on the line as well uh, through her efforts, uh, through the Department of Health's efforts, 
through uh, the White House, through Admiral Rocky at the uh, Indian Health Services, through Assistant Secretary Sweeney. Uh, so it's advocating at all those levels of government, making sure there's constant uh, information that's factual, that all leadership can then uh, make an informed decision on how do we actually uh, uh, work towards preventive measures, but also to make sure that our individual tribal members aren't impacted by uh, this virus. And uh, Secretary Trujillo, um, having two of the leaders here um, in the state, uh, the state recently collaborated with uh, several Native people in New Mexico. The Indian Affairs Department also um, works with the Navajo Nation and the two Apache as well as the Pueblos. Um, can you talk a little bit about the document, the tribal COVID-19 response that was put together specifically to address some of these issues that the leaders are talking about right now? Sure, thank you, Antonia. I mean, we heard from tribal leadership, a lot of communities about needing assistance and some guidance. And so what um, Indianapolis did is they worked really hard to prepare the document. We were able to collaborate with a couple of folks um, and get that document out. You know, we heard from our governor, Governor Lujan Grisham, you know, we need to do everything that we can do to offer assistance um, in order to provide guidance so that we um, stop, you know, we can reduce the risk of spreading COVID-19. And so this, this plan was offered as guidance to our tribal communities and leadership. As Chairman Chavaria mentioned, every um, tribal community is unique and different. Um, and it was just offered with the intention to um, provide some parameters around closures, isolation. Um, and so we really saw that as a tool that we could get out there and support our leaders. And can you talk a little bit about why it's important when these type of planning and documentation and even collaboration includes uh, tribal culture, even tribal language, and just a Pueblo way of life here in New Mexico, Secretary? Yeah, for example, um, we had assistance um, with a number of collaborators who took a look at um, certain sections of the protocol. I mean, a lot of it's really nuts and bolts, but one particular section where we received um, some, you know, a request for assistance is in relation to um, funerals and um, how to, um, and deceased persons. And so we um, made sure that we provided that information, but provided it in, in a way that, um, you know, really takes into respect um, our tribal communities and our cultures. Um, you know, there's, there's guidance out on the CDC website, but we really wanted to make sure that not only were we providing that guidance as well as the guidance that was coming out from IHS, but that was really in tune with who we are as Native people, Indigenous communities. And uh, Lieutenant Governor, anything to add um, about how important it is to talk to community members about COVID-19, but also to address those important uh, cultural aspects, traditions, language, um, and even um, maybe some of the ceremonies or events that have to be postponed because of this? Uh, in regards to that, um, uh, I wanna make sure that we wanna thank uh, Secretary Trujillo and uh, Chairman Chavarria for their leadership and guidance. Um, even as a tribal leader, and then when they mentioned different capacities, uh, we're, we're proud, under Governor Pantia, we're proud of the fact that we've really made sure we try to limit our financial liabilities 
and make sure that our division directors and our, our programs were given that support. And now we're at the point where, where they are executing the things they need. Um, but we do need documents like the tribal response to COVID-19. That was very helpful in um, outlining and framing some of the questions that we had as far as council and as far as tribal leadership. And also want to thank uh, Chairman Chavarria, Chairman Chavarria as the uh, APTG chairman um, you know, from Governor to Governor. Thank you for all your efforts in making sure that the tribal government or the federal government understands tribal needs and make sure that um, there's avenues for us to access that funding. So thank you for that. I want to make sure that um, we, from Governor Pentia and the tribal council, want to offer that uh, that thanks. Um, but as far as you, you know, I think when um, Representative Holland mentioned in a, in a, a recent interview that you know our, 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 resi our resilience will persevere, and I think that's where we, as educated people, need to make sure that we understand what our uh, I guess our youth are saying. You know, send our people off to get educated. Many of them work in the health field now, and those people that work in the health field are warning us as tribal leaders, saying that our people need to take this seriously. I guess when we look at tradition and culture, we need to make sure that we recognize both sides of it. How do we recognize that at the same time reflect that we send our people out to get educated and when they are warning us of these things, how do we make sure that we respect that and share that with our community? And I think we are doing that, but it does take some understanding on that, that this does affect us globally and it will affect us for some time to come. But we're doing our best to make sure that our children remain educated. Um, we're seeing a lot more family activity on, on social media, and we're thankful for that. Also, at the same time, our police reports uh, continue to indicate that there's still some social ills that continue to pop up in our community. And all those will continue to put our front line at risk. And that's where we're asking our people to make sure that they respect not only our governor's wishes and our wishes, but um, the entire country leadership is asking us. Thank you, uh, Lieutenant Governor. And uh, Chairman, can you talk a little bit, uh, we we're talking a little bit about the tribal response, but also as chairman of the, your organization representing the different Pueblos, you've also put out um, information to the public and asking the public to also uh, respect the wishes and the orders of Pueblo nations as sovereign nations. Can you talk a little bit about what your message is to the public? Yeah, it's, it's very important that we all adhere to the social distancing, all here to stay at home orders. Again, it's not just uh, a native, non-native, it's for all of us. To survive in today's time, this unprecedented time has put various challenges on all of us. The disruptions of our daily lives has hurt all of us from our children to the elders. Closing down our schools, closing down our senior centers, our adult daycare centers, our tribal governments, our business establishments, in order to help protect our people. And we just don't do it for ourselves. It's for everybody in this world because it's a worldwide pandemic. And everybody needs to understand not to take this for granted. No one is immune. It doesn't matter where we come from. We're all impacted today. However, because it's a worldwide national emergency, the supplies outweigh the demand, or I guess the demand outweighs the supplies, I guess you would say. Uh, you know, the PPE, the protective personal uh, equipment, uh, that's very great for all of us. So we've we got to adhere to that, to respect each other in this time. 
Nobody is perfect. We all made mistakes in our lives. But during this time, as a challenge that the Creator has thrown at us, it's a matter to respect that on all levels of governance, on all levels of lands, because it is very important in order for us to continue our life on this earth that we respect each other, to, to carry forward in the, the oral histories that were taught to us by our elders, by our leadership, which is very important. And that's to love, care, respect. And that's all that we're asking is to love, care, respect what the tribal leadership have put out in these orders because we're all in it together. It's we that are going to make a, a, an example for we can continue into the future. No one has all the answers. This is a difficult challenge for all of us. So we got to put that disagreement to the side and have a better future for not just us, but for the ones that are yet to come. Well, thank you for that. And I want to thank all three of you for joining us. And just our thoughts are with all the tribal communities in New Mexico and of course across the nation and everyone around the world um, through this difficult time. And Secretary Trujillo, um, as we close out, any information for any of the Pueblos or Native people that are watching um, tonight where to find out the work of the Indian Affairs Department? Yeah, Antonia, thank you. We, um, I invite people to visit us on our website. Um, we, we have a, a tab there for COVID response. The plan is there. We're also placing resources um, that is getting drafted. Um, any other helpful information. We're also on um, Facebook and Instagram. We're pushing out our social media feeds to get um, information to people to also under to show highlight what the state is doing in partnership with our leaders. And before I leave, I just want to say thank you to all our leaders out there. Um, they've taken um, tremendous efforts to secure their lands and um, assist their people, and we're here as a partner for them. So um, stay at home. That's what you can do to um, keep everybody safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Back now to the line panel. Another big topic that seems to be growing in New Mexico is what to do with the prison and jail population regarding COVID-19. Of course, can't always follow the social physical distancing behind bars. And so there are big fears about what happens if there is an outbreak. And there's been growing calls for the governor to do early releases of people who are close to uh, getting out of prison and have parole plans in place. Right now, only about the time of the recording, there were only about 14 um, people that had been released early. There will be a Supreme Court hearing later about changing some of the um, requirements or, or guidance around those early releases, but we wanted to check in with the line panel for their thoughts on that as well. back to the line as the coronavirus starts its spread in jails and prisons. Advocates and activists are petitioning for the release of some prisoners um, to protect them from COVID-19 and also from pr pr prison workers, especially. Others want to put a stop to that idea to protect themselves from released prisoners. Uh, surge petitioners are not asking to open all jail cells, but just honestly to step up the release of prisoners who don't pose a threat to public safety and this is posing, I'm sorry, this is beginning to be a hard sell for the public in some circles. Can the governor be doing something a little bit better here about this message? Well, I, I mean, I think the, 
playing up the public health aspect of it is is going to be more more palatable to many folks when we when they if they recognize that it's not just the prisoners we're talking about it's the staff it's the correction officers it's all the folks who daily have to go in and out of the the prisons um, it is inviting a slightly more self-centered viewpoint i suspect i mean i concede but that's probably going to be the better the easiest sell is, mm -hmm. uh, on this one um i you know from my standpoint you know you've heard me on this show many times before but i think it's it's an important moment to think about what it is we're trying to do with our correction system and really really focus on um who needs to be locked up and who does not need to be locked up and you know this is probably not a moment for folks that folks are going to be um impassioned or dispassionate i should say and mm -hmm. thoughtful about um the real risk to the community posed by you know folks who are in prison because of technical parole violations or nonviolent offenses or we're about to be released anyway um, but it is an opportunity to to see what happens and and have that conversation going forward right. i think the messaging could be could probably be better focused less on release of prisoners and on decreasing uh, the risk of uh, contagion among the the staff and the corrections officers you know, interestingly, Julianne, when you when I see certain circles complaining about this, they're talking about felons being released. I mean, there's all kinds of rumor kind of stuff going around it. Let me kind of go through the list here of who's actually eligible here for the folks watching who may not know. Uh, those at risk of serious illness from COVID-19, that makes sense. Those with less than a year of sentences remaining, uh, those held on infractions such as parole and probation violations. I mean, it's not, we're not talking about hardened felons here. We're talking about folks who were just about to be released and I just, you know, something's not quite getting across. What's your sense of it as you watch this filter I mean, through? Look, prison healthcare is notoriously uh, failing. You know, it's not a good place to go if you're sick. It's not a good place to get sick. Um, it's a place where you are likely to, um, you know, contract disease anyway and have a challenge being cared for. And mm -hmm. so um, I think that's one big part of it. I think the other part of it is that none of these people, um, although some of them may have committed capital crimes in the prison system, by and large, these are not crimes that are punishable by death. Mm -hmm. And if you contract the coronavirus in a place where you are not able to get appropriate health care, um, the chances that it leads to that you know, are there. I don't want to sound like a, an alarmist, but I think that um, we need to be very careful about what could happen um, if there is a significant outbreak within one of the prisons. And thankfully, we haven't seen that yet. Um, we had a positive case in the Santa Fe County Jail, which, you know, is just right across the street from right. the state penitentiary here. Um, they tested 33 people. It was a combination of inmates um, and corrections workers and other folks who have to come into the prison um, by nature of their job. And um, those 33 tests came back initially negative. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that that first positive test, that individual also had a negative test right. um, you know, before this. So I don't think we're out of the woods at all in terms of the Santa Fe uh, county jail or the state correction system and, and the risk of an outbreak. Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of, you know, to one of the points that was made earlier, this is a situation of like, if we can do this now, wouldn't it have been nice to have done this all along? 
you know, right. um, in Santa Fe, it's, wow, we've got people living on the Midtown campus, people who are in marginalized housing situations or homeless. We've found a way to, to give them housing. And um, we could have done that before this crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with these people who are jailed on technical violations. The state legislature tried to address this issue. Um, they tried a couple times uh, and it didn't uh, quite uh, pass with the impact that, you know, the advocates had hoped for. Um, and so in some ways, I think that um, this is being viewed as like a, a way to use the COVID um, crisis to advance an agenda. Right. I think that's part of why there is so much pushback. I, I, I have to agree that the pushback doesn't seem to really be about um, keeping people healthy and safe. It seems to really be about, um, you know, kind of the bigger issue of why people are incarcerated and how and, and um it really is something that our state needs to wrestle with um, outside of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, Serge, a number of groups are involved with this, including the ACLU. And one of the issues that's come to mind is we do now have, uh, in Otero County, a positive test result in one of the ice holding facilities. And this is going to bear watching because this could prove to be very problematic for the governor if things get a little out of control there. But she has limited authority about who can come and go in these facilities. It, it's quite a, a dilemma when you really think about it. And I got to think fingers are really crossed up in Santa Fe at this point. Uh, I, you know, this is, it's not a question of if, I, I suspect, right? It's a question of when. You've got people crowded together, lots mm -hmm. of hard surfaces, um, uh, poor health care, and um, not a lot of opportunities for the social distancing that we're discussing and people coming in and out of these places all the time. Mm -hmm. It is, what are they, I heard someone describe it like, you know, a, a cruise ship with bars on it. Um, you're just, everyone's stuck together and there's no chance to get away. And it is, it is just, it's um, an outbreak waiting to happen. And I can't imagine it is not going to happen somewhere in our state at some mm -hmm. point. If it hasn't already, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. And we really have to wrestle with this idea of, uh, I mean, the ICE facility is a whole other kettle of fish, but this idea of what do we value more, you know, retribution and punishment or public health and the health of New Mexicans who, who you know, regardless of where they are right now, still deserve the, uh, the, the benefits of our health system. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth noting too that um, in addition to this this push for the prison system, that's those uh, folks who are held by the state and also the, the uh, prisoners who are held by the uh, federal agencies, that people who are being held by the counties are also being, um, you know, kind of up for early release. You've got both Santa Fe and Bernalillo counties taking some steps to do that. And so you really have um, all these different levels of control and um, they're not acting in concert, certainly, but um, you know, mm -hmm. I think we will see some changes at each level as this goes on in the next week or two. Right. Uh, we've got two minutes on this one, Serge. You know, the New Mexico uh, Supreme Court has been petitioned as of this past Tuesday, or this Tuesday, for this. No clues yet where these folks might be, but the process turns slowly. This is another problematic part of this. It was almost like a race against the clock here, uh, getting some clarity. Do you see anything on the horizon that would allow this situation to be to be uh, resolved before then? Or I, I just I can't personally see it. Do you happen to see a, a, an ability to thread the needle here for 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 the Governor Lujan Grisham? Uh, you know I I don't know enough about I have to give that sort of the, the ins and outs yeah. of how how this might work to to do that. I will 
You know, I was going to say, and I think, you know, anyone who's threading this needle also has to think about, it's not just opening the doors and saying, okay, good luck to you, right? This is a group of folks who have, um, need, need, who will need support, social support, financial support, right? And mm -hmm. if, if we say, okay, we're going to do this in the interest of public health and send people back to their homes and their home communities, but then don't give them support, it's basically hamstringing, you know, this whole, the whole idea of increasing public health, increasing public, the, ben, the, the public welfare by doing this. And so I think it's also important to think about what happens next and dedicate some thought and some resources to what happens when the doors close behind somebody, right? We have that problem in the best of times, but that's right. In, in a situation like this, and it's worth doing, but it's also worth doing right. Exactly right. Hey guys, we're up against the clock, so we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank you both. This has really been terrific. And I know it's a bit of a difficulty to kind of do these things from home. So we appreciate your patience for sure. One quick note, the criteria I mentioned for release, and that's, what the ACLU and defense attorneys are asking for, not what the governor is using. There's a distinction there. At last check, 14 prisoners had been released. Lastly, this week, we want to join, or we want to welcome back Laura Paskus into the fold. She is, of course, our Arland correspondent, normally covering environmental issues here in New Mexico. And uh, one of the other side effects or impacts of COVID-19 is a acceleration of environmental policy rollbacks under the Trump administration. One of the things that recently came up was a proposal about expanding hunting opportunities in various um, places, including Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge. We wanted to get some folks in who are in favor of that proposal and who have their concerns about the proposal to talk about uh, why they feel the way they do, and what this could mean for one of the state's biggest tourist attractions. Jesse Dubell, we're here talking about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's proposal to open 900 new hunting and fishing units um, across the United States, including some here in New Mexico. And the agency's press release last week called it the largest, single largest expansion of hunting and fishing opportunities in the agency's history. It'll expand big game and migratory bird hunting down at Bitter Lake near Roswell. And at Bosque del Apache, the changes are a little bit more extensive. Can you talk about what's allowed at Bosque del Apache now and what would change under this new proposal? Well, currently there are some managed hunting programs, primarily for waterfowl that already exist in Bosque del Apache. Under the new uh, uh, proposal, it would actually enhance the number of species being able to um, be pursued on the refuge. That would include big game such as javelina and also oryx. Uh, also additional acres are being proposed to be included in the managed hunting program. Many of us who have been to Bosque del Apache were accustomed to thinking about the refuge in terms of sandhill cranes and snow geese or Ross's geese. Um, what waterfowl species are hunted there? Well, currently I think the big draw, I mean the, the, the big attraction is obviously the sandhill cranes because they're just such a magnificent waterfowl species. Um, but there's a plethora of waterfowl that exists there and the hunting opportunities for some of those will be increased, which would include wood ducks, mallards, mergansers, any number of, of different waterfowl species that currently use the refuge as a critical wildlife habitat. In the announcement, the um, 
the Secret Interior Secretary Bernhardt and the head of the Fish and Wildlife Service um, explained this expansion of opportunities as um, a celebration for the Trump administration's successful elimination of COVID-19, looking ahead to the fall hunting season. But is this something that New Mexico sportsmen have been anticipating for a while or waiting to happen? It's something we've really wanted to happen. Um, this particular administration uh, has been very good when it comes to, to the hunting programs on the National Wildlife Refuges. And it's something that the sportsmen and women of New Mexico are very appreciative of. There's other refuges that we would still like to see additional hunting access opportunities increased on like Sevilleta Wildlife Refuge. Um, but this, this is something that hunters in New Mexico are, are extremely excited about. And how many sportsmen are there in New Mexico? I know your group represents a certain number, but estimating how many sportsmen are there in the state who would be taking advantage of opportunities like this? Well, that's a great question, Lauren. I would be guessing to give you a number, although um, I, would, I would have to say that we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of sportsmen in this state. And not only that, that reside in the state, but people come from other states to, to take advantage of the wonderful outdoor recreation opportunities in New Mexico. Neighboring states like Texas just don't have the type of public land opportunities that exist here. So there's a huge economic benefit to what New Mexico provides when it comes to access to nature and the outdoors. I think sometimes when um, people hear a National Wildlife Refuge, we think of it as a place where animals hang out and are kind of undisturbed. Can you talk about why hunting and fishing is, is something that's a part of the refuge system? Absolutely. Hunting and fishing um, essentially funds the refuge system, which was the original funding mechanism to create these places. So the National Wildlife Refuge System is really a result of efforts by hunters and anglers, sportsmen and women across the country. So hunting is a, certainly an appropriate activity to exist on these refuges. And they are refuges, but a lot of times I think people think that a refuge is a place where animals can escape from hunters. The reality is the refuge is designed to provide a habitat because human development, fragmentation of habitat, roads and subdivisions, industrial activities uh, have, have destroyed so much wildlife habitat that we've had to create a funding mechanism to preserve places for these animals to exist. And the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937, the Beagle Johnson Act, the Federal Duck Stamp Program, all of these programs are ways that hunters contribute dollars to purchase these properties and manage these properties and, and ensure that we have a sustainable wildlife population to pass on to future generations. Uh, one thing that's important for people to understand is that anymore, nothing exists by accident. If, if you drive across New Mexico and see pronghorn antelope, they're not there by accident. They're there because we've made a conscious decision to manage that population of wildlife with sustainable use. And speaking of management, earlier we were talking about the increased hunting opportunities in Bosque del Apache. Uh, some species like javelina, for example, they can be very destructive to ground nesting birds and various um, plant habitats and things like that. And so hunting is a necessary management tool in these wildlife refuges. And it's a very managed program. So there certainly are rest periods where wildlife is given the opportunity to hang out there and be available for all non-consumptive users to come and enjoy. Jesse Duval, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. 
All right. Thank you, Laura. It's always great to see you. John Horning, Wild Earth Guardians. I checked in with conservationists around the state, and it seems like there's pretty widespread support for this proposal. Your thoughts on this plan? I think it's a step in the wrong direction. I understand that refuges were created um, originally by hunting interests who saw a need to protect habitat of waterfowl in particular. Um, first refuge created by Teddy Roosevelt. We live in different times. Uh, hunting and fishing are on the decline. Most Americans' relationship to wildlife is one where they understand that wildlife have intrinsic value. Even wildlife that are not endangered deserve um, habitat and, and refuge from hunting pressures in particular. So I, I think it's a step in the wrong direction. It's a step that is similar to many the Trump administration has taken to serve uh, an increasingly small, smaller amount of the American public. So I'm discouraged we'll be commenting on it and potentially challenging it as well. So we're talking about Bitter Lake Refuge and also Bosque de la Pache here in New Mexico. I'm wondering if you've looked at the proposal and have any concerns about those two refuges in particular or other species or ecosystems that would be affected in these 900 units across the nation? For guardians, obviously, um, New Mexico is where we got our start. Um, so there's a particular interest in the refuges in New Mexico that would be opened up to uh, new hunting or, or greater access to hunting. But we also have an interest in, in all the refuges. As you noted, there's some 900 refuges. It's 2.5 million acres. As Barnhart proudly noted in his press release on this, it's an area the size of Delaware. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think that in a, uh, <clears throat> not just for Bosque de la Pache and Bitter Lake, um, but for all these refuges in a time of um, climate crisis and a time where we're losing habitat, uh, especially wetland, open water habitats, it doesn't make sense to increase pressure on even fairly common animals. Um, uh, so I, I don't think it's something that uh, while this administration clearly supports it, um, ecologists would, would support because as I said, we're, we're only seeing greater pressure on habitats and species. So it, it goes against sort of a common sense grain that uh, grain of thought that we should be protecting what limited areas do provide refuge for, for fish and wildlife from all kinds of threats, including hunting. Let me be clear. I am, uh, I'm not a hunter. I'm fine with hunting. Hunting occurs on all kinds of public lands. And I think that's fine to a large degree. We don't support hunting of large excuse me, native carnivores, but hunting for food and uh, is, is totally acceptable. You know, you can rebuild laws easily um, or, or reestablish laws through court victories and hopefully a new administration, but rebuilding the morale and the integrity of agencies, uh, that's a difficult challenge. Well, John Horning, Wild Earth Guardians, thank you for joining the show this week. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you.